High Well Trust podcast, presented by Roshin O'Hagan and Jared Dean. Welcome to our special podcast edition, which features Martin Stern. This event took place on the 25th of October in St. Augustine's Church. We were pr- very privileged to hear from Martin and his story of his experiences. This podcast is funded by the Central Good Relations Fund, the Reconciliation Fund of the Department of Foreign Affairs, and co-funded by the Derry City and Straban District Council and the Community Relations Council. The Nazis passed over 2,000 laws discriminating against Jews in the most subtle and cunning ways. Got a book of them at home. In 1935, those laws were intensified by a set of laws called the Nuremberg Laws. The Nuremberg Laws, first of all, defined who was a Jew. Now, I guess if you're a Christian or something else, or a member of a political party, or a member of this church, all those bodies know whether you're a member. And guess what? Jews have rules about who is a Jew. They're rather simple. According to Orthodox Judaism, a person is a Jew if the mother is Jewish. The father could be anything, it really doesn't matter. If the mother is Jewish, according to the Jewish religion, the child is Jewish. Simple. End of story. There is only one other way to be a Jew and that is to convert to Judaism. But unlike Christianity and Islam, uh, Judaism is not a proselytizing religion. If you went to your local Orthodox rabbi and said, Rabbi, I want to become Jewish, the rabbi would probably have a little chat with you and ask you why. And explain that you can be a perfectly good person without being a Jew. You do not need to be Jewish. And Of course, Judaism believes absolutely in the afterlife. And we believe that if you're a good person, you will get the same reward in the afterlife as a Jew who is a good person. There is no need to convert to Judaism. Everybody can become a better person. It's not easy. But everybody can try to the best of their ability. And you will get the same reward. So why do that if there's no need? Also, if you do convert to Judaism, you will be expected to follow hundreds of very restrictive rules. You will not be able to do it unless you really passionately want to do that. And finally, Jews have always been persecuted. Why pull that down upon your head if there is no need in order to be good or to have a good afterlife? So converts to Judaism are rather uncommon because most people who make that approach, change their minds. But of course, Rabbi Hitler knew better, didn't he? He made his own rules. They were strictly racist. You could be a practicing Protestant or Roman Catholic or anything, but if your grandparents were Jewish, you were a Jew. Three or four Jewish grandparents, and that made you a Jew. If you had two Jewish grandparents, you were a half-breed, a Mischling in German. If you had one Jewish grandparent, there were restrictions on you, but you were not actually actively persecuted because the Nazis made a political calculation. They did not want to have three upset German non-Jewish grandparents upset about the arrest of the one uh, grandchild. The Nuremberg laws prevented Jews from working for the state, local authorities, public bodies, 
the Jewish professionals couldn't, could only work for Jews, doctors, dentists, lawyers, or like my father, architects, for example. How many Jews were there in Germany? Three quarters of one percent. There wasn't enough work for these people. What's more, the Jews had been impoverished by the stage and were not going to be employing architects or lawyers for that matter. People were instantly ruined, people thrown out of their jobs, instantly, overnight, lost their pension rights, totally. The Nuremberg Laws defined Jews as subjects of the state but not citizens. As subjects, they had to obey the laws, they had to pay taxes, they had to pay fines which might be imposed on Jews for the damage the Nazis had done. As non-citizens, they had no rights. When in November 1938, the Nazi party, the party of government, instigated disorders all over Germany and Austria, which is always forgotten, it was worse than Germany, believe me. They instigated disorders in which the homes, shops and businesses of Jews were invaded, looted, smashed, the occupants dragged onto the street and humiliated by being, for example, forced to scrub the pavement on hands and knees as they were being jeered, laughed at, spat at, kicked, beaten up, sometimes killed, and in hundreds of cases dragged off to concentration camps. And the police turned up all right and watched. The Jews had no rights. When on that same night, hundreds of synagogues were burnt down all over Germany and Austria. The fire brigade turned out all right and watched. If the flames threatened neighboring buildings which did not belong to Jews, they would get their hoses out. But the Jews had no rights. And the Nuremberg laws also made it illegal for a Jew and a non-Jew to marry or have sexual relations. For that, people were publicly humiliated and thrown into concentration camps. My mum and dad fled to the Netherlands. They were refused permission to marry there because the Dutch applied Nazi German law when they hadn't been invaded. My mum had to go and live in Belgium. And my parents married there once she'd been there long enough. But they went back to Holland. There I was born. The Nazis didn't care whether the Dutch thought they were neutral, they invaded. And the Dutch, not really being prepared for war, surrendered and let the Nazis walk in. Very quickly, laws against Jews started to be passed. Jews had to report to the local town hall and register as Jews. If they didn't, they would be deported. And people knew that wasn't good. And they had to pay for the privilege. The Dutch had invented an identity card system years earlier. They weren't, nobody was thinking of the Nazis when that happened. It was just a clever idea by a post office official. And apart from having your personal details on it, it also had a photograph and a thumbprint. And it was constructed with extreme fiendish ingenuity. It was extraordinarily difficult to alter or forge. So the Jews registered, and now the Nazis knew where all the Jews lived. 
And gradually, they introduced the same anti-Jewish laws that they had in Germany, step by step, not all at once. And that way, people thought, well, another restriction, it's terrible, but we got by before, we'll cope with this one too. And more and more, their freedoms and rights were restricted until they were unable to defend themselves against being rounded up and deported. And 80% of Jews in the Netherlands, when the Nazis invaded, were left in the end with one freedom only, to step forward into the gas chamber in Poland. It became impossible for my dad to earn his living as an architect, and he started making wooden toys, and I was upset that I was not allowed to play with them because I didn't understand properly that he had to do that to keep us alive. And then my dad disappeared and my mum wouldn't say where he was. And then still at the age of three, my mum told me not, it, it stopped me from playing with kids in the street, you know, no computers, no iPads, no television didn't exist in Holland, less traffic on the street. What do you think we did? We played with each other in the street. Better than computers, I think. But it was too dangerous for everybody to know that there was a little boy, the son of a Jew, living in that flat. And then one November night, 1942, I saw my dad for the last time. He came home from his hiding place on a farm near Amsterdam airport. What had happened, my mum had gone into labour and my dad came home risking his life because there were Dutch people who hunted Jews. You could get the equivalent of 38 quid in today's money for betraying a Jew to the Nazis. Actually, you didn't have to do that. You just reported them to the local police, and the police would pass the information on to the Nazis. Somebody could have spotted him from their window below in the street, phoned the police and said, I think if you turn up in the next 10, 15 minutes, you'll find Mr. Stern at home. And they would have earned their 38 quid. He came home to help my mum gets into the maternity hospital and to get me off to an architect colleague and friend and his wife who were going to look after me for a few days whilst my mum was giving birth. And so my baby sister was born and somebody, a doctor or a nurse in the hospital didn't wash their hands. My mum got an infection which was not rare in hospital births in those days, didn't occur with home births, childbed fever. In the 30s and 40s everybody here would have known what that was. It seems a rarity at the moment because of antibiotics, but it is still present. But then there were no antibiotics, and she died. So there was my baby sister with no mother, dad not in a position to look after her, and the couple that had taken me in for a few days while they were stuck with me. And they looked after me for two years, around the corner and three blocks from the Anne Frank house, although Houndley figured that out uh, long after the war. Um, and they were wonderful, they were like my own mum and dad, they were, they were just absolutely fantastic. But they knew they were risking their lives because the Nazis announced in the newspapers, on the radio and in posters on the street, protected you and you'll be treated like one. They knew they were risking their lives. But on the day that I was arrested at school, the uh, husband and wife were also arrested leaving their eight-month-old baby alone in the flat. 
And that's how I came to see that man from behind in that building. He was sent to a concentration camp near Hamburg, Neuengamme, where people were worked, starved and beaten to death. The inadequate amount of bread that they got was partly made from sawdust. And the horrors of that camp I haven't time to describe. But his wife got just his spectacles back with a false death certificate. What about my sister? She was taken in by another Dutch family. They were raided by Dutch police. There was an altercation during which the 16-year-old fiancé of the son of the family ran off with my one-year-old sister and escaped. Whereupon such threats were made to the family that the next day they took my baby sister on their lap in the car, drove to Amsterdam, handed her into the police who handed her to the Nazis. My sister and I ended up in a prison camp in the Netherlands, barbed wire fence, wooden watchtowers, sandy soil, black creosoted huts, and the first thing I remember being told is don't go near the barbed wire. The soldiers in those watchtowers have got guns. They will shoot you dead. Terrible food, vegetables, you would not only throw away, you wouldn't have them in your house in the first place. And not much of that. Each week a train of goods trucks and cattle trucks. And I stood there at the age of five watching these trains being loaded up every week, every Tuesday. And the people loading my fellow prisoners in there were a few railwaymen, and they looked pretty ordinary. And there were some soldiers, not all that many. Uniforms, pale brown leather holsters on their hips with pistols. But I could see their faces, and their faces looked like faces you see every day on the street. And there I was wondering how such an ordinary set of, uh, looking set of men could do that to people who I knew were normal people. I'd been living amongst them because they were crammed in like sardines. And then the doors were closed and sealed with steel wire. And as the train slowly pulled out with the poor people inside trying to peer out some of them through the rectangular openings in the sides of the trucks, <coughs> there'd be a soldier with a rifle over his shoulder standing on a step on the end of each truck holding onto a handle there for the purpose. And even I could work out what that soldier might do with that rifle should one of those poor people inside manage to scramble out through the wooden sides during the journey. Well, of course, my turn came. My sister and I ended up in a cattle truck, rather than a goods truck, because it had the kind of door that hinges up and down for cattle to walk up and down. You couldn't sit. We were wedged standing against each other. One bucket for a toilet, women, children, men, old, young. And it for sure wasn't an express train. Sometimes it went at normal speed, sometimes it stood still for long periods, sometimes it went agonizingly slowly for hour after hour after hour. Most of those trains had a board hanging on the side saying where they were going, Auschwitz, Sobibor. By the time people reached those places, they were in such a state, they were pleading for food and something to drink, some water. And one of the tricks for getting them into the gas chamber was, yes, yes, you'll get something, but first a shower. And they never
der sol er fuldt væk. If I'd gone that way to Auschwitz, my life expectancy on arrival would have been something like two hours. To be selected to be a slave worked to death, you had to look as if you were at least 15 or 17 years old, and not more than about 40, at age five, obviously no chance. The people selected for work lasted on average three months, dying in the most horrific way. In general, the, the commonest mode of death was simply you were starving, working, you burn up all your body fat, then you start to burn up muscle. You become weak and apathetic. At that stage, people were picked out and gassed. These emaciated people were called by the Nazi guards Muslim, which means a Muslim. I don't entirely know why, and I've never read an explanation, but it's just one of the peculiarities. Sobibor, same story, except no work, apart from a few to empty gas chambers and burned bodies, and they were then disposed of themselves. So it's obvious that there was something different about my train. It was the same sort of train, but it went to a different place. The place still exists. It's a town in what's now the Czech Republic, it's north of Prague, it's called Terezin, and it had a German name, Theresienstadt. A walled garrison town. The walls made it easy to turn into a prison, and the garrison town bit meant it was full of barracks buildings with soldiers' dormitories, and the Nazis didn't cost them anything, they just threw the Czechs and the Slovaks out and used it as a holding centre for Jews, who they couldn't immediately kill. And in fact, they didn't want to kill immediately because they wanted to use them for deception, propaganda. The idea was to hold Jews there for a while, allow some correspondence, which was word by word controlled by the SS. You could only say nice things about the place and not tell the truth. And these reached the outside world and were meant to create the impression that Jews taken to the, from Western Europe were not being killed. And it was to some extent successful. But we, all of us intended to die. About a thousand people at a time were taken off in good structured cattle trucks. Again, a railway came right into the street of the town, built with slave labor. Fleas, lice, bedbugs. It stank to high heaven. It had about eight times the number of inhabitants it was built for. Water and sewage supplies were never repaired. Uh, and people lived in filth, starvation, and fear. The fear was that your name would appear on the next type list posted up of people who had to be on the next train. And if you didn't turn up, they'd grab several others instead. So the other people would make sure you were on that train. On the day of our arrival, I was taken out of the building for children. For, uh, I was amongst a whole lot of little boys by a woman I didn't know. She took us to the place where she slept. It was a shell of a shop and on the floor sleeping places for women. And guess what? At her sleeping place, my baby sister, who I had lost track of. She had collected my one-year-old baby sister from a different building, from amongst a whole lot of little tots. What was going on? I was beyond asking questions. But I know the answer because I asked her after the war. Point number one, she wasn't Jewish. She was from a Catholic family in Amsterdam. She got married to a market trader. 
who was a Jew. That's why she was imprisoned. And in a place where people were fighting for space and trying to get their names off those lists and living in despair, most people think of number one. She wanted to look after some children. And somebody said to her, there's a train coming from Holland, there are two children on that train whose father killed two German soldiers, why don't you pick them? And the story, I've got an independent account from somebody who didn't know this woman, that he was hidden on a farm near Amsterdam Airport, the farm was raided, he ran into the field with a pistol, and he shot two of his pursuers. And as soon as he shot them dead, he was caught. Torture of people caught armed like that was routine. That's how the Nazis got their very copious information about the Dutch resistance movement. He was sent to Auschwitz. From Auschwitz, he was transferred to a concentration camp inside Germany, outside the lovely town of Weimar, five kilometers outside a horrific concentration camp in the forest, the beach forest, where the Weimar citizens used to go for a walk on a Sunday. A beach forest in German is a Buchenwald, Buchenwald. And in the concentration camp of Buchenwald, my father is recorded as having died on the 25th of March, 1945. And he wouldn't have known that what he'd done had played a vital part in saving the lives of his two children. Mrs. Leon, the lady who looked after us, stole food for us. She worked in the kitchens. She brought us cooked food in the dormitory, whilst other people were dying from malnutrition and infection. If somebody had shocked her to the Nazis, that would have been the end of her. She risked her life to do that. And we didn't actually starve. I was certainly extremely hungry. I think I was commonly hung, more hungry than I would guess anybody in this room has ever been in their lives, unless you've had a very exceptional life. But I wasn't a walking skeleton. There's a huge difference. Also, the other adults in the camp made sure that the children relatively got a bit more food. It made a huge difference. When I became ill, yellow as a lemon and pee the color of black coffee, and I felt absolutely, really horrible, very ill. There were prisoner doctors and nurses who tried to help patients, and I wanted to go and see one of them, and boy, did she warn me, you stay inside. If people see you ill, you'll be killed. It's the one time she really spelt it out. She was a good woman. Primary school education only, but she was a smart cookie. She was not stupid. In today's world, she'd be a high achiever. But it was different then. She looked after us till the end of our time there, when it was announced that children had the board to board the next train. She couldn't keep us off the train because we were not physically hidden. She just kept us in women's dormitories, from which changed all the time. And she decided she could not put us on the train to go to our deaths alone. She decided she would come with us and face her death. It was 1944. New prisoners were being brought in, so there was some news of what was going on in the outside world. She would have had some idea that the Nazis were already being defeated. And she decided she couldn't let us go alone. But our names were not called. 
The other children were august in Auschwitz, but we never boarded the train. Well, the Nazi lost, and a pit for our bodies had already been dug. Theresienstadt was not itself an extermination camp as such, but at the end they were trying to construct a gas chamber and they had already dug part of the pit for our bodies. But a lot of the guards decided towards the end that uh, they needed a holiday. Uh, they didn't want to be there when the Allied troops came in for some inscrutable reason. And so they became very inefficient and uh, they didn't quite manage to finish us off. Twelve years ago, the National Holocaust Center people decided that, uh, realized I'd retired as a doctor, and uh, they decided they could use me. They invited me up there, and they said, stand on that stage and tell them your story, pointing to a room full of school kids. And I very quickly learned a couple of things. One, it's not my story. I was a kid. I don't ever remember doing anything other than what I was told or something completely inconsequential. That, to my mind, is not a story. Around me were adults who did extraordinary things. That is a story. It's their story I'm telling. I'm just left alive to tell it. I learned a couple of other things first, uh, uh, as well, but I think it's time to start on question and answer. Thank you for listening. This podcast is funded by the Central Good Relations Fund, the Reconciliation Fund of the Department of Foreign Affairs, and co-funded by the Derry City and Strabane District Council and the Community Relations Council. So that was Dr. Martin Stern event to give very sincere thanks to Martin for, for giving up his time to come and, and do the talk for us and to share his experiences. It was a very successful event, very well attended. And thanks also go to the Executive Office and the Holocaust Memorial Organisation as they help support us in all our organising. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages. On Facebook, look for the Hollywell Trust. And on Twitter, it's at Hollywell Tea.